Welcome to the State of Sport with me, Ben Karpinski, where I have numerous smart conversations with smart people from the world of sport. Anything ranging from the digital side of things to the on-field, sport is very exciting right now. And I think post-pandemic, we have some incredible opportunities to not only enjoy sport more, but also know a whole lot more about it. All right, we've got Pretoria's finest here in the studio in Joburg. Guys, it is... Drickers Duplessis, Cameron Simon, we have the biggest, and I'm saying this not because I'm just, you know, patriotic, this favoritism, but this is the biggest UFC card coming up. It is December 10th, UFC 282, and we have not one South African, but two. Thanks for joining me. Great to have you in front of me today. Thanks for having us. It's good to be here. So just a bit of a backstory. I mean, obviously, you're listening to this podcast because you're a fight fan, but I wasn't prior to meeting these two guys, and I was a team sport, conventional kind of sports person, but now MMA, UFC, it's like my favorite thing in the whole wide world. And um, Cam, you're about to make your proper, proper UFC debut. I was there when you made your EFC debut, yeah. which was what, like two years ago? Two, three years yeah, ago? Three, that was about three three years, years ago, yeah. three years ago. Yeah. So December was, it would be three years. I think yeah. the 14th of December, that's three years. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So exactly. for, as, for as long as you've been a professional, I've been an MMA fan and so much has happened in that time. I mean, Drickus, you've gone from being EFC champion to now your fourth fight in the UFC. You're making your way up the rankings there in a very, very tight middleweight division. It's just been a very exciting time, I think, for mixed martial arts in general. You know, we see how the UFC's come along, how the the sort of exposure that the fighters are getting. And it's just so great that in South Africa, which is a country that's so well known for boxing, obviously the you know, we got legend fighters across the years. You guys are now taking it up there to the MMA ranks. And it's just cool because now I have conversations where Two, three years ago, nobody would know what they're talking about. I'd, I'd mention fighters and they'd be like, no idea. That's, now, that's true. That's, that is a, that is something that changed completely in South Africa. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Is it because, uh, because myself and Cameron aren't the first guys to go to UFC. I think, um, what makes me the first, there was a few firsts for me. So firstly, I made my debut on short notice on a main card, which was something that didn't really happen. Um, before, before us, we had Ron Potts who went in, didn't have a great run. We have Gareth McLellan who, uh, didn't have a great run, but he, he won a fight. <clears throat> and then we had Don that went in and he did really well, but Don Madge, yeah. yeah, Don Madge, he ended up getting, uh, two wins. Yeah. He got two wins in yeah. a row, one pretty good, uh, knockout and a performance bonus and one pretty, uh, you know, a decision that <laughs> might have not been like the, the, he did what he had to do win the fight. He broke his hand in the first round. That's, that's what happened. Uh, he parted ways with the UFC to go to PFL, uh, because he was absent for a long time. And then JP basically didn't have a great run. And then myself, I signed, I, we were in COVID. They phoned on 10 days notice. I mean, I wasn't in great shape. I mean, it's COVID time. So what are you really training for? Training at home. And but I mean, that was training my whole career was for that moment when in that fight. And uh, I got my three wins, and that's eventually when my uh, agents, uh, which I got Cammy them to sign Cammy, said, "Well, now they trust a gym and a country because that's how it works." So I was the first guy to get more than two wins, and I was the first ranked South African. So that was the first, and then you know CIT, the team that's our team, that that whole system started becoming almost known. People were talking about the weird style I fight at. And Cammy got his shot at the contender series and he absolutely nailed it. So I think it's great because like you said, two, three years ago, nobody would even know what you're talking about. If you're talking about 
any fighters in South Africa. And yeah. right now it's so mainstream. Like That's the thing. You, you'd have to have a, a, a specific conversation with a specific person or like a certain website would talk about this. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things. I just want to dial the story back a bit because like, you know, I just started by saying I've known you guys for three years. So much has happened in that sort of time there. When did it actually start that you met Cam and obviously, Cam, you got into fighting. Drickus, we kind of know more your backstory from being EFC from like a young age, double division champion. But when did you guys kind of, because as you say, you know, part of the same gym, your gym CIT is a, is a proving ground now for South African talent. When did you guys kind of start this dynamic? Well, I think Cameron can tell the story a lot better from his perspective, how we yeah. actually, how we actually, um, met up with CIT. So CIT started, when I first started CIT as a, it's his, uh, he has a bike, uh, bike shop, sells bikes, cars. Mone, obviously your, your main coach. My head coach, Mone Fisser. Yes, he's the head coach. But as far as CIT now as a team, the commercial side, the gym, uh, I'm the owner of the gym. Mone is just the coach of the professionals. That's all he wants to do. He wants to coach professionals. He doesn't care about, he doesn't do this for money at all. For him, it's about coaching professionals. So, I took over CIT, the gym, as a, uh, since I was, I was 19, 20 years old, uh, the commercial side of it and took the gym, run the gym. I was in control of making sure the gym's clean, making sure rent's paid, making sure like it was my business. It, uh, I got handed the baby of CIT and that's how it grew into this amazing gym we have now. And I was about 20, 21 years old. Yeah, maybe 20. Maybe 20 yeah, years 20. old when Cameron walked into the gym. Yeah. And that's how we met. But he knows he, from his perspective, the story makes a whole lot more sense. Cause I was just there and I was like, Oh, I have to train this kid now. Cause there's a potential sponsor online. Sure. Just, just another kid. Going <laughs> exactly. The door. And I was like, Oh, I want to, I could use this time for recovery, but sure. <laughs> yeah. So this little kid looked like he's getting bullied at school. Yeah, exactly. Like, what it was. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Kev, so you walked through the door and that was the start basically. Basically. So I actually before that, I did kickboxing for about two years at a at a gym in in Pretoria East and uh I met a lady there so I actually started training how her. old were you when you started like 12 I was 12 years old yeah. so 12 years old started training and I actually it, to help pay my gym fees I also like assisted in the kids classes you know stuff like that so we jog from school to the gym do my homework there give class and then my parents will fetch me in the evenings so basically spent the whole day at the gym and then a I met a lady, her name was Vina and, uh, her husband and she owned a company Q for Fuel and, um, they were a great, uh, sponsor for our gym. Yeah. A lot of people stage. will remember like Q for Fuel. They were like for six years running, they were CIT's head sponsor. Yeah. So they were actually helping me just, you know, get to competition fees, getting the needed equipment. And then their business actually, they actually fell in love with the sport of MMA without not knowing anything because their son trained with me. And uh, so they were looking to, you know, maybe sponsor a bigger team and uh, sponsor a, a team that actually has, you know, TV time, stuff like that, just for their business exposure as well. And then they came to me and said, you know, do you know Team CIT? And obviously... You know, I had pictures, I've said this numerous times, but I had pictures of Michiel and Leon and all these guys on my wall. I wasn't famous enough then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just 21 years old. You're part of the new era. The, the new fighters era. only magazines weren't massive. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So that's a, so I told them like, that's a great move. Do that. And, um, so they actually, 
took me to the gym, introduced me to Drekus, and that's basically how the whole thing started. I was 14 years old, 14, 15 years old, and uh, still only mainly doing kickboxing as a, as a style and a little bit of jiu-jitsu, no wrestling. And I remember that was a massive issue coming into CIT. But uh, yeah, then got got into it and trained, I think, twice a week with Drekus. Yeah. Um, as, as private sessions. Private sessions. Because at that stage, I was still, there was only one loss. So hard work at CIT, that's actually pretty funny. Uh, we didn't have the commercial gym like we had right now. Mm. So back to your story is we went to Q4. They said, listen, we are keen to sponsor the team. What do you guys need? And we had to go and I had to go and pitch to them uh, a proper proposal saying, this is what we need. You'll be the head sponsor. And, uh, part of that deal was they said, listen, they have this kid and he wants to be trained personally. He has to be trained by me personally. And I said, good with that. So I kind of feel like that you guys are just destined to be together. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> it was like, like at that stage, I was like, <sighs> okay, well, I mean, for the sponsor, sure. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm still not picking much enthusiasm out of Drakus. Yeah, there was, story. there was really not a lot of enthusiasm because <laughs> yeah. like I'm training for a fight now to deal with this. And it was the first session. I, I remember that, that first meeting we had with, with Vina and it, he was still, he had to drink like black coffee at the meeting yeah. because he was cutting weight. Yeah. And you can just see he wasn't in the mood for So edgy, yeah. caffe- <laughs> caffeinated up and now you get yeah. this prospect. And I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays, I'll take him from yeah. one, like off for an hour. And yeah. if he could be late and cancel, that'd be great. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I remember the first, <laughs> I think the first few months, my warm up was like 20 minutes on the bag. Yeah. So I just be like, <laughs> just hit the bag. Cause I'll be just like cutting weight and be like, I so I mean, like, did you feel you had to kind of prove yourself right from the start just to kind of get this guy's buy in? 100%. Well, uh, 100%. What, what really happened was the first day I saw him, the first day I told him to hit the bag. <laughs> I saw this guy and I was like, wow. I was like, listen, this guy is not bad at all. And I asked him his experience and he did some semi and light contact stuff, which is not cool at all in, in the MMA world. And I told him as he, he did some stuff in the bag, because obviously the bag is the only way I can actually see what this guy does, what's the mistakes he's making, his technique. And I gave him a few pointers on the Monday saying, okay, listen, when you kick, do this. When you kick, do that. When you punch, do that. Use this, do this. And the Wednesday he came back and now he's what, 13, 14 years old. And he did everything I told him perfectly. And I was like, that's pretty impressive. And I told him on the Wednesday a few more stuff. Next Monday came, he did everything I told him perfectly. And immediately I was like, this kid is special. I knew, just knew it because just the way he improved like that. And you could see it's not something that I show you and he knows how to do it. He went home and he went to go practice for everything I showed him. And how it worked then at CIT was there was, I was only giving one personal class, a private class, and that was him. And I coached the amateur team. So the amateur team consisted then of people basically paid if they want to. Like I was in control of, of that. So I had a little list on my phone and I would be like, ah, oh, that guy, I'm sure he paid me this month. And it was cash only. So I would be like, I'm sure he paid me this month. Yeah, sure. I think he paid me. And some guys would have trained there for like a year without paying, but it was fine because we had the sponsor. So it wasn't, it was about keeping the pro team happy and keeping the gym open for them. And, uh, they were the driving force. I started to, to train uh, amateur team for only one reason. And one reason only is to build a future pro team for CIT, a feeding ground. So 
Um, no, this, is this kind of because you wanted sparring partners? You, you wanted I wanted sparring to partners, of course. And like, I mean, this is my whole life. It's the sport and I want to see it grow. And I want to teach the system that I'm being taught by head coach Monet Fisser down to guys and get potential guys like Cameron. And uh, it worked great. My brother came through that ranks. The first ever session he did was with me. Uh, he, be, he, he went to EFC. He became a double division champion and amateur. Nerik Simos, he just fought for the EFC belt. Same thing. Uh, and that was that was a great motivation for the rest of the amateurs in the team because yeah. I think everyone wanted to to join the pro team. I think there was like a weird type of aura in that team because yeah. I still remember, you know, you you had to wait outside the gym. There's no going inside the gym while the pros were training. So they they were training from about five to seven in the evenings, and then you wait outside, and then you just see these guys that are, you know. <laughs> Guys that you'd really look up to and obviously coach, walk out, greet you, and then now it's your turn to go. But always the the motivation was like, if you put in the work, you can join that team. You can eventually. come to the pro. So yeah. that was literally why, that's why we didn't care about people paying. Well, I didn't care because I, I was in control of that. I only cared about talent. So it ended up being, like I said, my brother Neil Duplessis came through those ranks. Chad Henning came through those ranks, went 4-0. Uh, Cameron came through those ranks. Stefan De La Rey, I coached him. He came through that ranks. And uh, Nerik came through that ranks. Uh, Yaku, yeah. who's uh, in the UFC, came through that ranks. JT yeah. came through that ranks. Those are all guys. When I started coaching at CIT, when I started the amateur scene at CIT, they were the guys that started there. And look at where they are now. So that was what that was the purpose of this whole thing is creating death in the pro team and in MMA as a whole. But, but so, no, so Drake, it's like you were kind of on the top side of that. I mean, it's obviously Cam's story is cool because everyone knows where you got to. And he is in many ways, Cam, not taking this away from you, but you're following in his footsteps. Like the path was made by you. Yes, absolutely. But in, like from your side, you obviously mentioned Monet was a huge role in this, your head coach. But who were the kind of guys that were maybe like kind of giving you that sort of guidance or the sort of like path to go on? Or were you just so absolutely hell bent and hell focused right from the start of being a world champ? Yes, absolutely. Like, uh, Monet, first, uh, the, the guy is, is, is incredible in this game. Like I said, he's not in this for anything else than he's not in this for the money. He makes a lot more money doing what he does. Um, for him, he, he showed me what was possible. And for me, it was like you say, I had a guy like Mahu Opperman who wasn't a full time fighter. He's a, a chiropractor by day. And he was an incredible fighter. And to see how, what that's, he could that's do. That's quite a contrast. Someone who fixes yeah, people exactly. and also breaks people. Yeah, but he was great at, at creating uh, his own patience. <laughs> <laughs> and looking at a guy like Leon Maynard at that stage, who was the powerful bound best fighter in EFC, um, I was training among those guys when I started, when I was 18 years old. And seeing the work they put in, what's possible, and of course, learning from them and seeing what is possible, but... The only thing is they are at the end of their careers. They are 30, 33 years old at that stage, 32 years old. I'm 19, 18, 19. So I'm learning from all these guys. But I was one of uh, – Leon was doing this full-time. He was fighting full-time as well, but not always. For me, what, what helped me is same with, like with Cameron right now is I was one, the youngest by far and the youngest fighter. I've never had another job. Right out of high school, I've never had another job. I've only been a fighter, full-time. That was what I did for money. That was what I did, like I've always done. And Cameron, same thing. So I think that makes a difference. People don't realize the difference that makes. You know, the outside stress of, of having to work, the recovery, all that. I'm doing three sessions a day. That's what I do. I train, I, fight, I train, I sleep, I eat. This is my job. 
So I think that makes a massive difference. And that was kind of where there was a lot of people doing this full time, but not at my age, which I think made me a pioneer. And, and it made it, that's what set me apart. And that was, that was what's, that's what's great about our amateur system here. Hmm. We are getting kids. We have kids from five to 13. Then we have a high school class from 14 to 18. And then we have an amateur class for the fighters and for beginners. For everybody, we have about 95 students right now at our, at our gym. Wow. 95 guys training MMA that wants to maybe fight MMA. So this is great. I mean, you have kids from five years old that might go all the way through. Cameron was yeah. almost that. I mean, he was 13. I was 13. And yeah, when we started the, the Little Legends program as well, it was a, it was a thing of something that CIT taught us was like, you have to have the system behind the monster you want to create. Yes. And now we literally, at the end of this year, we're going to have, we'll have five 13 year olds moving into the high school classes. And that makes me super excited for that someone that's, that has, awesome. have seen those kids develop for, you know, let's say three, four, five years. So it's absolutely insane to have that. And then also to have six year old kids that can shoot double legs from both sides and, you know, box from both stances. It's absolutely, it's super insane. And that, that it's actually also, unfair because yeah. like, there's probably going to be a stage where I have to fight these kids yeah. and you. Like, yeah. And it's like, listen, yeah. you got early. You started at like 12, 13. I started at like 15, yeah. 14, 15. Well, I did start with martial art at five. Well, you started with your brothers when you were about four. Or yeah, five. I mean that's <laughs> the thing. Like we, but I mean, I look at those kids when he's coaching, and I see these little girls, like five mm. to seven years old girls, and they shoot takedowns, they land guillotines, and I'm like, what? What's this? Yeah, it's pretty, it's insane. You know, like, everything you're saying here now, because like one of the things when you started out in the UFC is that you said you wanted to be an African-born and raised and living in training and champion. And that would make you the only one in the UFC because let's yes. be honest, everyone else has kind of gone to other more first world countries and they do so because of facilities, opportunities and coaching. And I always like kind of thought, I never actually asked you this, but there's going to be a stage where being in America would be easier. Absolutely. When I look at your camp now, which we'll get into in a second, you train here, you then got to travel very far. We're looking at like 30 hour flights with commutes, all that kind of stuff. And it's a pivotal stage because you're trying to monitor your weight. Yeah. Then you got to acclimatize to a new place. There's different cultures and all that kind of stuff. And any sort of travel is a ball egg. But now listening to you talk about this and the layers behind what you are as a champion, I mean, I can totally get it now. Like this isn't just home because it's where you can have a brow with your mates and your family is. Like you're building legacies throughout all the way down there. Is this kind of, was that the driving force you always wanted to have though? I mean, when you see yourself as a champion, people think belts. They think of the, the magic moment. But for you, I'm getting the impression that it's actually more than that. You're the champion at the top of a massive sort of totem pole of fighting excellence, basically. That's, that's absolutely it. When uh, I started fighting uh, at 14, like, like I said, I trained fighting. I started judo from five to 10 for five years. Then I started wrestling for two years uh, when we moved. Uh, from the free state to Gauteng. Then I started, and I, I mean, nobody else in my family did any boxing, kickboxing, anything like that. It was for me, I was just drawn to it. And I never loved anything else. I never, like I did all the sports. I loved rugby, still do, still love rugby, but there was just no sport. It's almost like I believe what you feel if you meet someone that you know you're going to marry. That's when I, this, that sport just, when I saw fighting, whether it was boxing, whether it was kickboxing or MMA, it didn't matter. For me, fighting and martial arts as a competitive sport was the coolest thing ever. Full contact martial arts. 
And the the way the sport changed me, how my whole life turned around, I was never like, no, I wasn't down in the dumps. I, I'm not, that's what's another cool thing about my story that puts me in a different bracket than a lot of these guys that come from terrible backgrounds, guys from broken homes, grew up on the street. I never had that. I grew up very comfortably and that's what makes it so weird that I chose this route, this route of, 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 of a career. But that was what made me happy. My parents always uh, supported me in it because they saw the work that I put in. Nothing has ever taught me how to work hard like this sport. And when I started training as a 14, 15-year-old uh, for competitions, I realized, look how good I'm doing when I'm training hard. And that impacted my schoolwork. That impacted all my other sports just by knowing, listen, I'm really putting in the work and look at the results. And my whole life, I went from a 60% student on average 62% to my school's top 10 in two months. Wow. And I ended up matriculating as number four in the top 10 of my school. Amazing. And it's the same year I became a world champion in kickboxing. So that was just how it related in my life, how it transformed my whole life in realizing the determination and the discipline it takes to be the best works in all aspects of life. And with the gym, exactly like that. I don't accept anybody in that gym. You can ask Cameron when, you, when with the pros train, I'll scream at the guys, even though I'm not the coach because I demand excellence from everybody because you are there because we all believe that you can be great. And if you're not, if you're slacking in training, you are not reaching your potential and that's not fair to anybody that believes in you. Yeah, you're bringing the whole team down. I mean, yeah. envi environment is just incredibly key. And that so, all those 95 uh, amateurs that really want to do this, they look up to all of us, yeah. all of us as a pro team because that's where they want to be one day. So you can't, you can't afford to do a session where you're slacking because that's the guys that look up to you. That's the future of the sport that gave me everything that I have. So when people often say like, you know, where did this guy come from? How did he get into the UFC? How is it that he's fighting with all these people know who he is? Everything you just said that you took through the ranks, obviously double division champion EFC, you went to KSW where you get some pretty mad Europeans with <laughs> some pretty lax drug testing. This <laughs> yeah. You have yes. fought the savages of savages to get to where you are now. And the UFC was a natural thing for you. Cam, obviously your story is a bit further down. Yeah. As, as we spoke about, you debuted like three years ago as a professional fighter. Um, you are now in the UFC as well. Like I said, UFC 282, you guys on the same card. What was your route as such? Like you obviously had EFC's approving ground and then you had this opportunity on Dana White's contender series. What were the kind of steps that just link between those? Because if you didn't see your career start i mean obviously your, your career started then there was covid inactivity you were getting the fights that you could try and get and suddenly you were in the face of dana white's contender series yeah take us through some of those yeah, steps it was quite weird because you know after making fighting my second fights as a professional then covid happened so i already lost basically a year of compete was that your second fight after the second fight yeah then then covid hits and then we were like okay we kept on training. I still remember I, I called Drickers when they announced lockdowns. Yeah, I was, I was like, just like, Cameron, bring your shit. Bring, yeah. bring your shit. So literally moved into their house, slept on a little pull-out mattress in their living room. And I was like, you come stay here. We're going to train. We're going to keep on we, training. Right? We stole some of the mats from the gym. We moved it to his garage and we had a pop-up gym there. And we just didn't stop because we didn't – obviously, we didn't know how long – COVID is going to be a thing. We didn't imagine it's going to be as long as it was, but we kept on working because we, we had a few airbikes. We had the airbikes there. Air we had kettlebells. all the kettlebells we needed, all the medicine balls. We literally took, asked Scotty, what should we take? Yeah. He took my bucky. 
Loaded everything from the gym, put it in the garage, and we train two, three times every day. Because we also thought like the rest of the guys are not going to train. So yeah, now it's like a way to get in front of them. <laughs> we, we're going to have an upper hand. And uh, so that was a massive thing, just like losing that year. And then we had to catch it up. So luckily, thankfully for being obsessed and active, we were ready. So the, the moment the venues opened up again and the events opened up again, we could compete. And I think the idea was never to, you know, do it as quickly as, as I think we did. I think yeah. the opportunity, you know, like coach always said, we need to get six, seven, eight fights, then go to somewhere like UAE warriors or so, something like, like, like a, KSW, like a mid, like yeah, like a mid division type of organization before we go to the UFC. And no, then, sorry, hang a second. Was that because of opportunity or because you wanted to be battle hardened in a certain way? Yeah. I think it was more um, experience. Right? Yeah. So experience. Just gain that experience. Yeah. But, uh, one thing that that helped Cam, that I believe is once, like I said, the fact that uh, they now know what we can do as a team, as a country. Uh, we are on the same team, and they trust the agents that myself and Cameron have. Then the agents saying, I told them from the beginning because at first they actually just signed guys that's like six and zero guys with titles, and two fights before his uh, title fight in EFC. I told them, guys, sign this guy now. I promise you, somebody's going to take him. And they were like, no, you don't know. And I said, listen, if this guy costs you anything, anything, if there's anything that he costs you that he can't gain, I'll pay you guys. I'll pay the money. And they were like, okay, cool. And after that fight, even in number one contender fight, they were like, okay, this is cool. Yeah. This is great. And then he won the belt. And now he has a direct link. So when they asked me about his contender shares, I was like, I can't take this opportunity away from me. It's not my call to make. But I was like, immediately... Not scared that he would lose, but I was like, is this the right call? And a lot of people said it. People were like on social media, this is too soon. I was like, yeah. screw you guys, man. Yeah. You'll see this kid. You'll see I've him. seen this guy train. Yeah, for I've like seen every him train. And also, time. like, have you seen him fight? Like, it's the, the BMT is insane. He doesn't, since I've coached him, since he fought at the, at the, at the amateur highest level, like, he doesn't get phased by the light. That's the most important part. So you got the opportunity, Josh Wang Kim. Yeah. I'm going to say his name slowly. <laughs> um, he wasn't exactly just like another guy from just like a, a upstart. I mean, this guy was pretty accomplished. No, I, I, I really older, I th- more experienced, yeah. incredible skill sets. Like this was quite a name to get at this level. It's, it's funny because our manager was also after the fight, he came to me and he said like, man, I'm going to be honest. We didn't like your chances against this guy. You know, I think he was, like he was amateur, thrown to the wolves. They, they yeah. he really wanted that guy. They, they really, said, listen, we, let's, we, every we give him is that so guy. So that, that was the guy. Give him the young South African guy. Yeah. Yes. So he was five, five and one. And his only loss was a controversial DQ as a professional. Before that, he was 19 and one as an amateur. Wow. And he was coming from a very well known gym in California. So it, yeah, the odds were definitely against me. And, and also, I didn't realize how good this guy was because I watched some of his other fights and yeah, he did some good stuff yeah. until the fight started. Like obviously yeah. I could see it was good when, when the fight started with Cameron. Because I couldn't go with Paul and why? What's the reason? Uh, we only had a limit of traveling. The traveling, yeah. Point, yes. Yeah. And uh, I watched. I woke up and watched the fight, and I was like, in the first round, start. I was like, okay, this guy, this guy's really good. He's solid. <laughs> this guy was really, really good. He was moving and he was kicking super hard and he yeah. was super big. He was tall. Mm. So it it was it was a thing of like, okay, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because before that as well, obviously. Hey, you're going to try and not read comments and, you know, check videos and stuff like that. But it came up the whole time, you know, okay, he's getting fed to the wolves. And then I was just like, okay, 
Well, to give you an extent of that, like I was throwing forward to your fight on social media. I was in yeah. Australia at the time, so my time zone was a bit different. Yeah. Um, people were like messaging me. People had no idea about saying your guy's going to get beaten up. Yeah. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. One guy's like, do you want to take a wager? It's like, yeah, guys did that. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, so my, my, my biggest fight no was chance. with, with, um, with South African fans. Yeah. Because they didn't even, like, they didn't even know who he's fighting. Like, I didn't even know who he was fighting. Like, I don't know this Kim guy. But everybody was just like, he's too young, it's too soon. And it's I was like, soon. what do you know about being too young and too soon? He's just won a title from a guy who's an experienced vet. Yeah. But that that has always happened. Like, even as an amateur, when we fought for the amateur title, they were like, okay, it's too soon. We we won the amateur title. Yeah. <laughs> we defended it twice as well. And then that happened again in the EFC, making my debut at 18. Everyone was saying, this is way too soon. And they wanted me to go fight at IMAFs at the World Championships. And then we told them, like, it doesn't make sense paying 45, 55,000 rand. <laughs> yeah, you know, to go become an amateur world champion. Uh, that means, uh, they, t- they tell you it means something. It just means, n- like, not a lot. I mean, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's a great, it's very, it's an awesome, um, Stepping stone. I mean, yeah. if you go become, oh, you're going to get a good contract and a big promotion. But, but five <laughs> fights in, he got his UFC contract and he got paid from fight one. Yeah, exactly. But the big yeah. thing is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it, guys. Don't put, don't push guys too soon. We did that with my career as well. Like I made my debut and they said, this is too soon, definitely for this young kid. Cause at that stage, I was the youngest kid in the UFC. And then it became more normal after that because it was almost like a trend. But there's that guy who just got his UFC contract at 17. Yeah. He looks about 25. So. Yeah. I mean, that he was registered like 17 years ago. But, but, uh, but you know, at the end of the day, like we train with him and we are professionals at this, at the, at our gym. We've, Monet Fisser has had, I don't know how many world and, uh, African champions in his gym. I've seen so many guys train so many guys, been in the sport, involved in the sport for the past 14 years. And since 18, been involved with this every day. This is my whole life. We wouldn't send anybody in there that we don't think is ready. We knew he was ready. We, I didn't even have a doubt. And that's also like the testament to coach's mentality because it was always a thing of like, we're going to take time. We're going to do it. We're going to grow slowly. And then the <laughs> opportunity came. Joshua and Kim, Dana White consensus will kick his ass. Like no, yeah. no question about it. And I think that, that speaks a lot to coach coach's absolute faith not only in our system but also in the athletes in his system because he knows what how talent rich we are at and he knows the work that we put in like if they give that opportunity to anybody else he knows listen cameron puts in the work and he knows cameron is a dog in his heart even though he is from pretoria east (laughs) so he grew up a little bit softer (laughs) but but, but, uh, (laughs) that's what i I find like i often have these conversations online with people people have very conventional wisdom and they try to apply it to conventional people which is cool if uh, you're a conventional that's, person. That's hundred percent. But everything true. you guys just said in the last half hour shows that this wasn't. You never were. You never played MMA. You never played boxing. Cl- played kickboxing. Whatever. This was a thing that you started and you wanted to do and you wanted to excel in. It's like in your fiber of who you are. And I think you have the right to earn your confidence in life. So if someone says, "Do you want to do this?" It's like, of course I do. I've this is trained. what I do. This is what this I is do. This is what I do. This is what I'm ready for. It's like when people say to me, "Like, you know, what are these guys' chances in the UFC?" It's like, well. They work harder than anyone else. They've been doing this for so long and, and they want to do this. So when people come with this conventional wisdom bullshit, it's like losers always rely on luck, you know, or if he gets lucky here, like why would he hope for luck when he's prepared, (laughs) when he's trained, when he's sparring against absolute savages on a day to day basis? This guy's just another person who wants to have a fight with him. Yes, absolutely. And, and to, to, you know, to, um, add on to that, 
uh, funny enough, that that was my thought, the thing that I thought immediately when uh, I got my call for my UFC debut. So we were in lockdown for, I mean, two, three months. Yeah. Uh, the gyms weren't allowed to be open. And then that was the craze of Fight Island. Like Fight <clears throat> yes, Island just became a thing. And just I think became. And they phoned me on 10 days notice and it was a Monday. And I think, uh, so we still had like newspapers against the walls and stuff so we can, nobody can check in. And we trained and it was just, uh, but just the, the few, the few pros. And that was the first day we did it. And we were busy with strength and conditioning and they phoned us. They phoned me, my agents. And I was like, why are they phoning me for when I just went on my WhatsApp while I was training and I just saw, will you fight? And I was like, I immediately phoned back and they were like, cool. Will you take the short? How's your weight? And I was like, weight doesn't matter. My weight wasn't good at all. I had to lose 12 Ks in 10 days. And I was like, no, my weight's perfect. And they said, will you fight? Will you fight? And I was like, absolutely. They said, I said, when am I flying tonight? Can I go home and pack? They're like, no, you're only flying in two or three days, chill. <laughs> and uh, I was like, this is insane. I'm finally getting my UFC shot. <clears throat> and then they said, we'll know by tomorrow morning. There's a few other guys speaking up their hands, like saying that, but at this stage, you are the first one to accept. And uh, the next morning, I didn't tell anybody. The next morning they said, okay, you have the fight. And I phoned coach and I phoned everybody. I was just like, yes, I got the UFC fight. And, and coach went like, that's awesome. Who are we fighting? And I was like, oh shit. I never asked who I'm fighting. I didn't know who my opponent was. I didn't know at all. I just said, yes, I didn't care who it was. But then it all sunk in. I was like, I'm flying out in two days. I have to cut 12 Ks. I'm fit because I've been, we've been training, but I'm not like, I also, you know, it's COVID. So we were, all the friends were at my house. We were partying. We were having a great time. Yeah. And, uh, so we were training. I was training, but I wasn't in the best shape. I was definitely not fighting fit, ready at all. And I was like, I'm going into the most important fight of my life. The least prepared I've ever, ever, ever been. I've never been in a ring unprepared. Now, the whole thing about preparation, you mentioned weight there, but also like fight styles are a real big deal. You know, yeah, there's a yeah. big difference between fighting someone who's really good at striking and someone who's like jujitsu or is really great on the, on the grappling, whatever. These are things that you factor in when you are preparing, right? Yeah, These absolutely. So, I mean, now I'm fighting this guy. Well, when I got the guy, this guy's never been finished. So he goes to decision every time. And I'm like, this is great news for me. The guy's never been finished. I'm not fit. My, I can't go to distance. My cardio might be not what I need That's to exactly. And I thought to myself, what are you doing? I'm, um, and I, I was almost angry at myself because I was like, why aren't you prepared? And I'm like, how could I have prepared? There was no chance this was happening. And I just, my thought process immediately changed from I'm not prepared to, listen, I've been preparing for this moment for the past 10 years, every single day. Exactly. It's not about a fight camp. It's about the past 10 years. I've done everything for this moment and it's not going to go away in three to six weeks. There's no way. Yeah, There's well, no way I'm, I'm ready to fight and I can fight in any day. When the fight got confirmed as well, I was on the way. I think I was still in the car on the way to Hartis or something. And he told me like, cause I'm the only one that had a visa and I'm also the only Southpaw. So we're <laughs> so, fighting a Southpaw guy. So he calls me. He's like, uh, I sent you documents via WhatsApp. You have to fill it in on your phone right now. Cause we have to, we have to get our plane tickets sorted out. So I'm like, okay, great. That works out for me. I get a free trip to Abu Dhabi, not knowing I'm absolutely going to get my shit rocked for <laughs> 14 days straight before the fight. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. that was so cool just to 
to to see the whole team step up to the plate immediately. Like everyone was making plans. He started um sleeping. Luckily, it was in Abu Dhabi. So well, we I mean, it doesn't didn't really matter because we fought like at three a.m. in the morning. Remember? So he had to adjust for like American time, even though we're fighting in, in Abu, Abu Dhabi. Dhabi. So in Abu Dhabi, yeah. they made me wake up at one a.m. To yeah. fight at like three. We were drinking winning mimosas at 6 a.m. So after my fight, we literally <laughs> went to the room after the fight. After my fight, my fight finished. I, I, we were back at the hotel at 5 a.m. Yeah. After the fight. How crazy is that? <laughs> Fighting, waking up in the middle of the night to go and fight. I was, that was that ridiculous. Was but everything must have been so surreal about that because Jeez. Fight Island itself was ridiculous. Wow. And the greatest great scheme of sport, what Dana White and UFC did there, it's like, okay, well, we just got to package this thing here. And it was just the only sport in the whole wide world that was going on. And they made a plan that was just like testament to how massive the UFC yeah. is and how cool that was. The UFC in the COVID two years, the fan base grew with 30% per year. They surpassed NBA, NFL. Amazing. Uh, all the major sport leagues in, in, in the world. But also, like, it's just because of this is the nature of the sport, right? What you guys just said about getting your UFC chances. You could have had a much easier route, right? That's it. Yeah, you could have. Yeah. <laughs> but I almost feel like this is what makes the sport so incredible is that it is so unpredictable. Like you, you got people who have to be like you guys. You can't get someone who trains five days a week, goes to bed at eight and is going to give you this every single time. Everything's unpredictable about Absolutely. the sport. Well, you see it in, in the UFC itself. You know, you have like 14th ranked guys fighting number one ranked guys. So when you get into there, you have to be ready for just about anything to happen. It's just the ultimate um, high stakes. That's yeah. what I find so great about the sport in general. Yeah. We've got to fast forward to obviously your next fight because what you just said to me now sounds chaotic. That's not yeah. just, that's not how, if you're new to the sport, that's not how it always works. Yeah. That's not always how it works. <laughs> you it's not just like you get on a plane and you go fight someone. I mean, because you've had some ups and downs with visas, injuries, um, even after your debut, which you won in spectacular fashion, finishing guys never been finished. Your next few fights weren't exactly easy either but now you've got a huge fight coming up okay and we'll get to yours in a second but you're fighting darren till now so what's the sort of time frame and how does it work like you get notified of this it gets confirmed although it is darren till there's always an asterisk next to it but like from getting the opponent and then structuring your fight camp like what's the sort of execution process around that so that you tie up you know that when you fly you're ready so uh the Darentil fight, like I said, they wanted us to fight in I think it was uh September the thirteenth was uh when it comes out for. So they phoned me while they were in America yeah. with his contender series fight. Right. So it was eleven o'clock in at night, so eleven PM. But Henny, my assistant, our team manager and mental coach, well basically runs the whole team, the Mexican did, and uh <laughs> and he phoned me at 11 and I looked at my phone while I was like trying to sleep and I was like you know I don't answer my phone at that time and he knows I'm asleep he knows myself. and I'm like did they start party did they start drinking and now they're phoning me drunk dialing me and I'm like no that's not happening <laughs> my brother comes into my room he says Henny says you have to answer your phone I'm like okay it sounds serious and my agents were there and they literally just said will you fight Darren Tom? and I said absolutely of course I'll fight Darren Tom. and they were like yeah but in three weeks so I had a fractured shin at that stage uh, wait one's going, I said, perfect. I mean, like, I can do, I can fight him. Great, 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 great. Just, a, said, just a fraction of shit. You got, you yeah, got, but you I mean, it was, I still had three no, weeks. Yeah, and two, <laughs> so I was just like, cool. Um, uh, we'll take the fight. Definitely, I'm cool. And then not, we heard nothing from Darren Till. Like, uh, they, we accepted the fight and 
we just didn't hear anything back day one, day two, day three. And my agents were like, the UFC are reaching out to them. They're not hearing anything. And that's when I decided to make the call out on, on, on social media saying, listen, are we going to do this now? What's the story? And Darren was like, no, September is too short notice for him. And I'm like, well, you phoned me. I, I was just lying in my bed and somebody phoned me. It wasn't like I called him out and we agreed for December. Uh, verbally agreed. So that was cool. That's how the fight came about. So we and my agents, we knew quite a bit in advance. We knew about 12 weeks out that we're fighting Darren Zoe. But you can't start prepping for 12 weeks, but, you know, mentally starting watching tape, started training for more specifically for a guy like Darren Zoe, even though we don't train by how are my opponent fights, but we had the perfect camp for, for Darren Zoe, fighting Darren Zoe. And, uh, looking at all his fights, looking at the mistakes, looking at the thing he, things he does right, looking at Darren Till as a fighter when he comes out, the best Darren Till we've ever seen and the worst Darren Till we've ever seen. And of course, I'm ready for the worst Darren Till, but that's not how I prepare. We prepare for the best Darren Till to ever step in there. Sure. And uh, I'm very excited. This is the biggest fight in, for, us, in, for African MMA ever. Even though, like I said, we said there is a heavyweight, uh, heavyweight champion, middleweight champion and what, former welterweight champion that's African but none of them reside in Africa. And this is the first guy residing in Africa that's going to fight for a top 10 spot against a name like Darren Till, and it's going to be amazing. Well, it's top 10, it's main card, it's Vegas. Yeah. It's, it really is quite something. So what you're saying is you need ideally eight weeks, eight weeks of your training. Eight weeks. Uh, if you're a guy that trains consistently like we do at CRT, like uh, most of us do, um, we train. I train every day, whether I'm in camp, when I'm not, when I'm potting, I can have the biggest hangover ever. I'll still be at training the next day. At least one session a day when I'm not in camp, even one, two, two sessions a day. I stay in that routine year round. So when the eight weeks come, you just step it up a notch to get that extra edge and get fight ready. I actually need four weeks in a, a, to be fight ready. The eight weeks just for weight, making sure everything is perfect, working on game plan and last four weeks is peak time to get your body to peak fitness wise. And essentially weight, I mean, let's just say again, using the eight week time frame, what do you wear at eight weeks and what do you weigh obviously on the scales? So the pre- previous fight, <laughs> we, uh, we try to go in a little bit heavier. If any of this is confidential, just say so. No, 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 no. It's uh, the previous fight we got, uh, walked around at 96 kilograms. I have to end up at 84, of course. So that's where I walked around 96 to 96.5, stayed there the whole camp. Started water loading 10 days out at around 93.8. That's how I gradually went down. I got in the cage, waiting at 84, got in the cage at 95.5 kgs the next day. Wow. So that was a big, I was big against Brad Tavares. But the fight before that, I got into the cage at like 94 uh, against Trevor Giles. And, uh, I started water loading not at 93.8. I started water loading at 92.2 or something like that. Like a one and a half case lighter. Got in the cage one and a half case lighter. And I felt better at 94 than I did at 95.5. Almost like that extra K and a half didn't benefit me. In fact, it, if there was anything, it was, uh, it wasn't like I could feel I was getting more tired or anything like that. It was just, I felt more light on my feet. And it's not like that 1.5 K is going to make me that much stronger. Yeah. So for this fight, we're going back in at like at 94. It's almost like we tried lighter. We Since I moved to middleweight, got in a little bit lighter, then heavier, then heavier, then heavier. Went another step heavy. And now we almost found that sweet spot, that 95, 94 kg range. That's where I want to get in the ring. That's why I feel strongest, fastest, 
and most mobile. And again, it's like you do that regardless of your opponents. So you're not saying like, I need to be slightly heavier yes. for a striker. I need to be lighter for a grappler. Exactly. Kind of and a lot of guys make that mistake. They go in like uh, easy. I believe that was a big mistake for him trying to pick up weight for a guy like Pereira. Yeah. You know, being heavier has its advantages, but it also has its disadvantages, your movability. A guy like Easy, that's his biggest advantage, how quick he is, how light he is on his feet. You shouldn't go try and be a heavy fighter because he's never going to be. You're not going to be able to put on good weight in such a short period of time. That's impossible. Well, we saw when he took on Jan Blachowicz, the, the light heavyweight experiment. Yes, exactly. Where he wasn't himself. Yes, exactly. It was so dumb. So you mentioned there that, you know, you know Darren Till's your opponent. You've got lots of tape. You can watch lots of things around him. You control him on Instagram. He's a massive figure you're up against. Cam, you're about to fight a guy called I Ron. follow him. Yeah. <laughs> I like some of his stuff. Great. Just so he has to know that I'm watching. Yeah. <laughs> Cam, on your side going into it, of course, you're a bantamweight fighter. So you're in the bantamweight division. You're fighting a guy called Ronnie Lawrence. How much do you know about him? And again, how much would you want to know about him going into this fight with your preparation? Yeah, that's the thing where I think, like, I, I know Drake is, does a lot of studying on tape. The moment he knows the fight is verbally agreed to and, you know, close to being signed, he, he starts watching. And I think that's something that makes him very almost tunnel vision when it comes to training is like he knows what he's preparing for where I differ a little bit in that. Like I, I do not like watching tape for that, those first few weeks of having the fight announced just for the simple reason like i want to just focus on my stuff i want to focus on how i felt in the fight before that and then just work on the stuff that i feel were my massive problems you know like after the container series fight i called coach told him listen we could have finished that in the second round at least like there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of technical mistakes. Why are you, why are you laughing? That's that's how coach like yeah. you, you could have always done it better. Yeah, so <laughs> it's always a thing of even after the contender series fight, you know, we went to the PI and trained just after the fights, and uh, he already had his notes ready on on stuff that we need to fix immediately. So those first few weeks are just okay, focusing on the stuff that I want to improve and stuff like like I feel like I fell short and then start slowly but surely introducing tape. I think it's also just a massive um, mental thing personally for me is just like not getting so fixated on that because I know it can also change. You know, people's styles, they have mannerisms that stay very similar through their whole fighting career, but you can change a game plan just like that. And sure. you need to be able to adapt to that in order to, to win fights. If, if I look like at my, my title fight with Cindy Lemonangela, we were behind two rounds and we had to make mid fight adjustments. Again, just showing you how am amazing of a coach coach Mornay Fisser is you know he he literally gave me a five point summary uh he said drop your base he said kick not as hard just kick faster he said focus more on your boxing keep the pressure you know he had like these five points and with that we went from two down to you know convincingly winning that last three rounds so it's just the thing of like a fight can, it's the game of inches and the stakes are super high. So you need to be able to roll with the punches, you know? But this and is it. I mean, mixed martial arts, it's in the very name. Yeah. There are yeah. so many different factors. There's so many different variables at play here. Yeah. And absolutely. And like a lot of people ask me, so what's your game plan with Darren Till? Obviously his wrestling is not that great on the ground. You'll kill him and stand up. You can underestimate you. And I said, I don't have a game plan like that. Like Cameron said, I like to watch a lot of tape. I don't prep for a certain opponent. 
the only thing that I really take into consideration is what's his strong points? What does he really like to throw? Just to be uh, conscious of it and look for mistakes that he made in the first fight and that he made in his last fight. That's something he's probably not going to be changing by this time. So that's it. Uh, we still, like he said, uh, the way we train, we focus on our game plan. So there's certain things you do consider when you fight this guy. But there's a lot of things that you'll be dumb if you're not wary of this guy's left hand because that's his, that's his primary weapon. Sure. So my whole game plan, I'm not thinking, oh, he's going to throw that left hand. No, not at all. It's just be uh, aware of it. But at the end of the day, if you go into a fight, I've made that mistake of saying, listen, I don't want to go to the ground with this guy. I can't go to the ground with this guy. Lost that fight. Gareth McLellan. I want to keep it standing. You can't go in any fight like with that mindset. That's why it's called, like you said, mixed martial arts. We have to be able to, like the Brad Tavares fight, same thing happened. First round, I was like, cool. Uh, that game plan did not work at all. Uh, and coach said, okay, switch it up. We're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. I said, okay, I don't like that at all. That doesn't work. He said, okay, cool. Let's leave that. So you have to make that, the same with him. You have to make that mid-fight adjustments. That's where the real, that's what, that's what the real knowledge of fighting is about is having somebody in your corner and be, having the fighter IQ to while you're fighting, also uh, taking in information, taking in this is the patterns that this guy does. Every time I do this, he does this. Picking up on movements and also processing this so you can go sit in your corner and tell your coach, every time I try this, he does this. And you have to be able to have that conversation. You can't just be like, because that happens. So that's, sure. that's, the, that's the hard part. Like, you have to be able to process the information that you're seeing, deliver that info to your coach. And most of the time with our coach, he already knows whatever I tell him. I'm like, every time I throw this kick, I'm like, yeah, and he'll say, yes, I can see he turns his leg in. Don't throw that kick anymore. And the new game plan is this. Stop kicking him at all. We're going hands. Because he can see when we kick me off base or this guy, just the way, because styles make fights. Mm. Something that works great against this opponent. You try this against an even weaker opponent, just the way he fights, that style doesn't work against him at all. So you have to be able to make that that change and the necessary adjustments mid-fight. That's the most important part is knowing that's why it's so important to be an all-around fighter. So you have to be able to be able to when this guy's out striking the shit out of you, even though you saw his fight, he's not a great striker, but just the way he strikes, he's you see guys that have sloppy striking styles and then they fight these real strikers and they just catch them the whole time. You see these strikers getting beat up by a guy that's looking sloppy. Then the striker needs to be able to go, okay, I need to adjust my game plan immediately. And you get a lot of guys that, uh, I feel a guy like Israel Desanya, uh, is somebody who that's it for that problem. Even though he's a brilliant champion, he's an amazing fighter, 23 and 0 as a middleweight, he's the best in the world. I don't see him. That's what this fight's going to be so interesting to see with Pereira is he's probably, there's a big chance he's going to need to make adjustments from his normal fight style that's just beating guys up in stand up. Because this is actually a guy that can beat him up in stand-up. So what can he make the transition into MMA and not be a striker, but be an MMA fighter? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself, the dynamic of that fight there. <laughs> it's got to be insane. But I mean, it goes back to good old saying that everyone's got a plan until they get smacked in the face. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you guys live that. And that's how you change a striker into a wrestler. <laughs> yeah, certainly. <laughs> You know, there's a very interesting dynamic here because, again, your career very established, because, Cam, you're at a place now where you've got this opportunity to make your first proper UFC debut. Like, when it comes to knowledge and knowledge sort of like sharing, like, how much do you feel you still need to draw from Drickus and vice versa? Like, how much do you feel that you might need to impart on Cam going into, say, like, you know, December 10th? 
So uh, my answer to that is uh, I try to not be condescending at all when it comes to Cameron's career, acting like I know everything, he doesn't know anything. There's so many things that he knows that I've learned from him. But a lot of times he comes to me with a technique and he says, so what do you think about this? And I'm like, that's pretty cool. Uh, if I have to be honest, if I, the holes I see in this technique is this and this and this. That's what I think is, is the problem with your technique, in my opinion. And I'll try the technique and he'll try the technique and I'll just show him some adjustments that I think can be, can work good. And he'll come to me and say, maybe this doesn't work as well. Or I'll try that technique that he showed me and I'll be like, okay, this is actually a really cool technique. And I'll do some maybe minor adjustments or use it and say, that's a cool technique. Keep on with that. But, I feel uh, a lot of things, personal life and professional life, they walk hand in hand. Well, that's the thing about being a champion. It doesn't stop at the fight. You that's know? that's, you that's be, the hardest be, part of it. You can be a disaster so, of a human being. You'll never be able to get back to training and be yeah. Well, that's so. uh, that's one one of the things like I, I would say he, he now focusing on the technique itself, but I think like all the th- things that I really would say are the key notes i take is not actually in fighting it's just the stuff around that it's when it comes to like he says personal life managing expectations from from fans friends family you know managing your own mental health when it comes to which training. will be which will be huge i mean obviously yeah. the profile of him like almost shadowing onto you in the early stages now there's gonna yeah. be massive pressure yeah because there's a, there's a lot of times where stuff happens in his life where I've been in the exact same situation and I'm, well, I'm I almost like, Cam, I hope for Cam's sake, not exact situation. No. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, exactly. Very, very but you know, to. the cool thing is we can dodge those situations because I can tell him, listen, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Do not do this. I did that. That's the worst idea possible. Or listen, this is what you need to, well, this is what I did and this is how it worked out. If I did this, it would have worked out completely different. So make your choice because uh, this is not just somebody that says, I think this will happen. I think I know what will happen. And I know what's what's coming, and uh, and that's one thing where I I can really help him out. Like I said, and uh, fight wise, listen, this guy's right there with me, skill wise. He knows everything that I know. There's some things that I learn him. There's some things that he teaches me. That's that is we are on the same level. The one thing I do have is I've walked the road. I'm just, just a few steps ahead of him in life, and the life outside of the gym. Right. Where uh, we spend a lot of time. I mean, we are basically best friends. We spend so much time together. We do so many things together. We do a show together. We do. So, I mean, I can see his life. I can see how it plays out. And you know, I don't think people realize the pressure that you are under uh, being in a in a sport like we are, especially being uh, so. There's so little people in South Africa who lives in South Africa now that's in the UFC. Nobody. Yeah. So, I mean, all the eyes are on us, and there's pressure. There's people. There's expectations. Well, there's always pressure about being an individual sports star. Yeah. When, you, when you're yeah. part of a team structure, you can almost like fade in, you yeah. know, go under the radar with a lot of things. For sure, for sure. And the, the big thing, what I, the main thing I told him is just be yourself, man. Some people are going to like you. Like in life, you are never going to go into a place with a thousand people where a thousand people like you. That can't happen. Even if you're the nicest guy in the world, there'll be not just one or two, a few people say, that guy, why is he so nice? He's hiding something. Or I don't like people that are so nice. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like that's yeah. that's unfortunate. And I said, listen, the only thing you can do is keep the people around you that that really that's really important. Keep them close, and uh, the people that you trust. And some along the line, you're going to lose some of them too. That's how it works. You know, even the people close to you that you think are always have your back. 
when you get too successful, if you get too, uh, when you get too big, it bothers them. And it's, it's the hard reality, but you know, it's making sure that the circle, the people you're letting close to you, you know, no matter what, whether you're up or whether you're down, whether you're the most famous guy in the world or you are at rock bottom, they will be there for you. And that's what you can, that's what you can control. You can't control everybody's thoughts about you. If you yeah. go out and party and people are like, he's an athlete. Look at how drunk he is. Screw those people, man. Like, you know, I do that. I go we out and party. <laughs> like, I mean, that's it. Like, I mean, it's, uh, we are still human beings yeah. and, uh, it's all about balance. That's well, the most that, important part. You're still young human beings. Like yeah. your, your peer group there, most people only worry about where they're getting drunk in the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's a very different kind of life when you've got the responsibilities like you have. I really want to get into, obviously, you know, you, again, you guys are in different sort of parts of the sport, bantamweight, middleweight. Your story path from here onwards is very different. I mean, Cam, I'll start with you because you are still so young and I know how much you love fighting because ultimately you're also still a fan. You are now in a place where all the people you look up to exist. Yeah. If you were to kind of, I mean, it's, no, but it's just, it's a, it's yeah. a very weird it's thing. not looking up to no fictional character. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's a weird thing to kind of comprehend for a lot of people to take it for granted. Like, when you look at your life, I mean, Cameron didn't watch Cartoon Network. Yeah. He's too young. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at your professional realm, most people only work in a very sort of mediocre kind of level. You know, if like, for, for instance, if I work in tech, which I kind of do, <laughs> like Elon Musk isn't my contemporary. Okay. I'm not going to work with him. Like that's not going to work out, but you're an MMA fighter and you're in a place where you'll fight the best person. Like you're really on that kind of thing. If you were to look at yourself in an ideal sort of five, ten year basis, whatever, there's certain people that you've got your eye on. There's certain people you'd like to fight. There's certain styles that you probably would look at and go, that would make something quite special in my career. In the current crop of fighters, what are the kind of people that you're focusing on the bantamweight division? Yeah, it's such a weird, it's such a weird situation as well. I've, I've explained that to, you know, my podcast host. I, we, we chat about fights and then he, he, he told me like, Oh shit, like we're not supposed to chat shit like this because you are there now like sometimes we kind of forget the situations we are in and um yeah it's, it's, it suddenly become very real it is like, it, it, it and it was very weird you know like after the contender series fight i walked out of the cage and uh sean o'malley was sitting there and i was like what's up and he stood up gave me a first bomb i'm like massive fan and then for a split i'll beat second, your ass but exactly for a split second i was like you're my weight. Uh, this is kind of weird. I don't that know. That is a weird, that yeah. is a very weird, that is like, it's very weird when you realize that for the first time. Yeah, like, they're, they're like, okay, but I, I'm, I'm in my mentality. I, I want to face you in, in two years time, you know, so I'm still a massive fan. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. But there's guys like really guys I look up to, you know, Peter Yan in my weight division is absolutely, uh, that's, that's really a guy. I have him as my screensaver on my phone. It's just a, a it's, it's just, that is, that but is, I it's, that. it's a uh, training. Listen, it's a, I have the UFC belt as my screensaver. There's nothing wrong with having a shirtless man and you're just, <laughs> <laughs> or cuddling it's, him it's, in, in for 15 minutes in front of thousands of people. Yeah. Luckily it's not like, imagine it's just a photo of him with a, a suit on, and be, but it's a training <laughs> photo. <laughs> it's a training photo of him. It's not know, even like, a fighting photo. No, it's, it's a fighting photo. Oh, it's okay. Like, I thought yeah, it's a training yeah. photo. I'm like, now it's, geez, me. But it's just him bloodied up and it's just like, that's one of the guys that I, I look to almost emulate fighting wise because I do think all around he's one of the best bantamweights in the world. Yeah, and I believe he's one I, of those grinders, one of those like really hard trainers. I've trained with yeah. Peter Yan a few times and he's really incredible if you see him train. But that's exactly what, like if I, 
I switch on my phone every, I'm, I'm looking at my phone every single day. So I'm asking myself the question, am I working as hard as he's working? Because that's such a good point. That, I, yeah. I can imagine that guy is just working his ass off because that's, that's all he knows. You know, that's all I want to know. People ask me, um, why don't you go study? Why don't you go do this? That like, I don't want to do anything else. So I want to be obsessed with this. So that's it, just, it that's, also kind of quantifies your training. It's like, I'm yeah. not going to train today. I'm going to go train because I am basically like Peter Young. Like yeah. this is the level I have to be at now. That is my that's, marker. That's, I'm not, I'm not training the guy in the gym. I'm not training yeah. the guy who I just beat. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like explaining it to people. Then uh, I, I tell them we're, we're going to the gym and then like, okay, but why? Then like, don't you go to work? <laughs> you know, yeah. you, that's my work. I have to go to the gym. I have much more fun than you do, but mm. <laughs> it yeah. comes with its challenges as well. Yeah. So Peter Jan, you know, Sean O'Malley, I think is going to be there for a few years still. So that's someone well, he's that's like what? 27, 27, okay, 20, yeah. 27, 28, 27, 27. Yeah. yeah. yeah he's turning so, 28 now. Turning 28. So I think we are the same age. Your, your myself age yeah. and Sean O'Malley. Yeah. So guys like that are, are some of the guys in the top that I really look up to. And, um, guys that I, I can see myself facing with, without a doubt, you know, TJ Delishaw was a massive motivation for me before he, he, he popped hot, um, for, for EPO. And, but he's also at that stage where he's gonna, you know, yeah, I mean, he's 37, uh, yeah. of the, the shoulder injury. Yeah. That's bad. That's a, yeah. Mm. But too much out of him. Bantamweights, when you look at the bantamweight division, it's, it's as talent rich, I think, as the oh, middleweight wow. division. You know, there's so many guys there and I think there's so many prospects coming up. So it, I think this, the sports is alive and well. And I think our weight divisions are, there's not going to be an, an issue when it comes to making exciting fights. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. so I mean, obviously, Drukas, when you started out, you were somehow cutting to welterweight and you were a champion at welterweight. It was inevitable that middleweight was going to be your home. Cam, are you very much based on man, on bantamweight? Do you, I, you see yourself as that is going to be your fighting weight? For now. For now, for sure. But uh, I know also for a fact we're going to be moving up to featherweight. And uh, surprisingly enough, other than my weight, that's probably the that's weight class. That's weight division. And that's the weight class I watch the most. Yeah, you know, like yeah the featherweight, that's a very yeah. interesting weight loss. Yeah. So, you oh, know, I mean, the UFC right now, there's not really a weight loss. That's not, yes, yeah, yeah, all the weights are it's like so much like, fun. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. But you have guys like Max Holloway, you know, Alexander Volkanovsky, you have like these Calvin Cater, yeah, yeah. Calvin Cater, Yair Rodriguez, you have like these absolute killers. And that also adds on motivation. You, you're going to have to become a killer. So. Yeah, but none of those guys live with Drickers Duplessis during lockdown. So yeah. That's it. What have they got to prove? Yeah. How many, how many metalweights are they fighting on a date? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Drickers, obviously your story is a little bit further along. I mean, you can literally count on your hands the people in between you and the title. It's yeah. a very different stage of your career. Darren Till, I've always thought that that would be a great next fight for you. We had this conversation much earlier in the year. So post this fight here. I know you're not looking too far ahead because it just wouldn't make much sense. You've got to give your everything to every single fight. That's what makes the sport so demanding. But Israel Desanya is always going to be this huge marker, as you say. His middle rate record is ridiculous. He's trying to become the new Anderson Silva when it comes to stats. But what are the sort of names and sort of styles or fights that you would really want to have as part of your career going to that point? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, uh, right now it's weird for me because – a year ago, I was still like, okay, I don't even have to worry about those guys right now. I have to focus on these guys at number 20. And and here I am fighting for the top 10. That means I'm like, after this fight, two fights away from a title shot, maximum. I mean, Adesanya, after this weekend, if he beats Ferreira, has beaten everybody in the top six and some of them twice. 
which makes it after this fight I'll be number nine, maybe number eight. So that that puts you in a position of fighting anybody in that top six for a number one contender fight. <clears throat> so for me, you know, everybody in there is now my enemy. Uh, not like I'm not obsessed with them, but I can't be a fan. There's guys that I think that are really good in my division. Uh, the guys that are above me, and there's guys that I would say this would be an easy fight. This wouldn't be an easy fight. This would be an easier route. But there's no easy route, really. But there's some guys, not because they are worse. They might have beaten the guys that I think that are better, but just because of the styles they fight. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, there's guys like Robert Whitaker, Marvin Vittori, Paulo Costa. Cause I almost feel like your division is a bit like when Tiger Woods was playing golf. Tiger was amazing. That battle for second was also incredible. That is, that is exactly it. Battle yeah, for second, yeah, no one really That's where we're at. You take away Adesanya. I mean, there are some absolute killers, but it's like an exciting range of fighters too. And they've been almost watered down because they got to easy in their That's last. it. That's it. All the, they've been watered down. A guy like Marvin Vittori, who's always been there, goes to decisions, uh, loses like only to the top guys. Take easy away. And what do you have then? But I have this weird, obsession of beating Israel Desanya. And that's why I would hate it if he loses this weekend because I would like to be the guy to, to take his belt. I would like to be the, uh, the first middleweight to beat him and not win my belt from somebody that, yeah, but he lost to easy. I want to be the guy that beats Israel Desanya. And that's where my mind's at. And to do so on the African continent itself. I mean, I know a lot gets spoken about, about having an African UFC um, you guys obviously get asked about this and because the sport is what it is, they can go anywhere. They've they can go literally. They've go absolutely proved that with Fight Island. They can go find whatever piece of ground they want. They can make this happen. What do you think the timeline is? What are the probabilities and what are the things that maybe need to happen first and foremost in order for this to be taken seriously? Like how could they host a UFC on the continent? I think, uh, realistically, South Africa, if you want to have any chance of, of doing this, it's going to have to be South Africa. And, uh, I would say probably Cape Town. I would say Cape Town because it's a tourist attraction. It's, uh, in terms of South Africa, they have the big stadiums. I think Cape Town is, is the, is ready for, to host something like that. And I think, uh, everybody would love that event. I think it would be a record setting event. And, uh, that's, how, that's honestly how I see I win my belt. I see myself winning my title here at home versus Israel Desanya maybe the end of next year. Probably the end of next year. See, in my mind, I'm not just saying it because I got you guys in the studio and I'm from here, but that to me would be such a great thing to add to the UFC. I mean, I know Dana's big into arenas because he wants arena combat. You don't want to be yeah. watching a fight on a big screen. You want yes, 20,000 people tops. Absolutely. I totally appreciate that. When Israel Asanya fought Robert Whitaker, was it Marvel Studio, uh, Marvel, Marvel Stadium in Melbourne? Yeah. 50,000 people. That was 50,000. And I think every now and again, there, there, there has, there's motivation to do that. Yeah. Say, for instance, you versus Israel Asanya. Maybe Francis Ngannou comes back and fights. Yes. You've got Kamara Usman. Yeah. You've got African fighters there who want to be claimed called African. That would be the greatest showpiece of the sport. Right now, they have a whole card of African fighters. They, they like with all yeah. the the guys that they have at least have on each side of with a blue or red corner an African born fighter, uh, born and maybe raised yeah. in the UFC. So and if they've, been, they've literally conquered every every continent: New Zealand, Australia. Well, I mean, if you can count them as, as countries on their own. Uh, Asia, they've done a lot of Asian shows. Uh, Europe, all over Europe, uh, South America, yeah, North America. 
huge the only one is Africa. Exactly. I mean, they, they've just fought in Singapore. They're fighting in Perth at March. And here we are. Well, I mean, now, Brazil, they've had what fights, better time than now? End of the, end of next year, I'll be the number one contender. So we started this, this podcast about talking about how you guys have put the UFC or MMA on the map in South Africa. Being people you can look at and go, okay, this guy hasn't just got like a sneaky three fried contract. He's going <laughs> to fight a couple of early prelims and that's it. Actual champions, actual champion mindsets. I think it's almost fitting that we ended off by saying that like on the back of your success and keep driving the fact that Africa is a continent where you can produce champions. Absolutely. Not, not born and cultivated elsewhere like Adesanya, Nigeria to New Zealand, Kamara Usman, Nigeria to America, Francis Ngannou. Cameroon, Cameroon to France to that guy's story. Wow. Yeah. That is insane. Yeah. But it is. I mean, and again, it's like a great driving force for your careers. It's like, we don't just want to compete here. We want to also broaden the sport and because we can, you have to, it's like you say, like the African continent is the last place we can really bring all the triumph and the success. And the closer you both get to titles, obviously you're further down the line. It makes sense. There's so yeah. much pressure. Dana White can't then just say, cool idea. It's like, okay, well, we're booking this now. Yeah. Like, I mean, look. The fans wanted the, you know, the trajectories uh, yeah. there. The amount of money that Supersport must be paying to get the UFC rights for every event live. There has to be a market for it. Yeah, of course. I mean, you, so, like, the thing is that you saw it in the, in the EFC. And, uh, yes. And I saw it like yeah. now when that's what I, that's where I said, is it because I'm fighting it? When I started fighting in the UFC now, Cameron, the big thing was when the UFC started airing live on Supersport, I speak to people. I have to tell you, like, uh, it doesn't look like they have ever, like, they would even love, it, like, to watch a fight. And she's like, my husband wakes up every Sunday morning to watch the fights. And I'm like, I mean, if I go on my social media on a Sunday morning at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., whenever the fights are, it's like, like, I'm on my phone at 6 p.m. at night. Like, it's so, like, you just see posts everywhere. Random people, South Africa, it's, it's going bananas. People are waking up at Sunday morning to watch the UFC event, whether we're fighting or not. And that is amazing. That's what we want to create with this sport is create where this sport becomes not cage fighting anymore. And that was my mission in this from the beginning is to move away from what the sports and the, the almost the perception people have about MMA fighters. And now people are like, these are athletes. They are athletes. Like they absolute, are not fighters. They are athletes. athletes. But like multi-code athletes is yeah. the thing about this. Now, people always get onto terms like cage fighting was a big thing because it was easily recognizable. <laughs> it was like putting two guys into a, into a cage and locking the door. And it, that was what it was. It and, was and really what it was used, because that was the kind of people that really want, would have done this. And that's how they used to sell it, which is cool. But that was back then. The sports come along so well. And again, like the two of you are the absolute faces of that. Professionals, multi-talented skills, great work ethic. The sportsmanship's there, like the brotherhood of your team. These are the kind of things that make a sport really incredible. I mean, you watch any other sport, you can't go that deep on actual tangibles as to why you want to believe in the athletes and believe in the fights. And when yeah. you say, like, you get up at two in the morning because, sure, people have a bloodlust and they have a certain desire to see exactly. I mean, look at out. the Coliseum. What happened there? <laughs> Those people, yeah. people just wanted to. Have, that's it's in our DNA, and that's the way it works. Absolutely. What we are looking to accomplish now with our kids program, with our high school program, with the whole environment we we are creating at CIT is to show parents, show kids, show people maybe that bullies being bullied, all 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 the whole demographic of people that listen, this is the most normal thing in the world, and to get people to respect athletes, 
to respect the sport and to start taking it seriously. I think we are, we are way past starting to take it seriously. People realizing, wow, this is an actual alternative and a great alternative to other sports. People that are maybe not good at team sports can find a much better fit in MMA because you are 100% responsible for your own success. Absolutely. And you, and it teaches you that responsibility and the discipline you get on that you put into every other facet of life. Absolutely. Yeah. Not enough can be said about this, but it is great because at least primetime TV now you get to see you guys and all the other steps will come through in time. Yeah, yes, thank you, DSTV. I was about to cancel my subscription. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys saved it with the UFC. Alrighty, UFC 282. So watching in South Africa, there'll be early hours of December 11th, uh, yeah. primetime America, 10 December. Um, so that'll be what Vegas, maybe four in the morning. I think that I think starts. Cameron is fighting on the early prelims and I'm sure the, uh, DSTV will make a plan to get them that, that fights on. If oh. not, it will be on fight pass, but I'm sure they'll make a plan for that. I'll, and then, I'll make sure between now and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk to some people. <laughs> and then myself, uh, myself's fighting. I'm fighting on the, I'm the second main God fight, which is huge in itself, man. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. So it's, uh, Louis, Louis Tapura, Ilya Tapura and Bryce Mitchell is the first main God fight. Myself yeah. and uh, Darren Till. And then off your is Paddy the Baddy versus Jared Gordon. Gordon. So that's a, yeah. that's, it's a very fire, firing, main card i can't wait it's gonna be so exciting um lastly cam your podcast i've listened to it a few times now you're not just a guy who can fight and do really well in the gym i, I enjoy your podcast i think it's a really cool thing when athletes are able to actually share insights from their sport a lot of them are either too shy too lazy or not articulate enough i think you cover all of those things and it's a really cool podcast um where else can people find you and how else can you be found in your career Thanks. Yeah. So the MSP show, it's on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you listen to It's the to most unprofessional show I've ever worked with. I must say the first time, <laughs> the, first, <laughs> the first time you came up, it was an absolute shit show. Like the, the lights were dying. Lights were battery, falling on me. Lights were falling off. We literally stopped. Just, we, we, you said, we sorry, to, halfway through, you was like, sorry, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to, <laughs> like but then, things just went like, <laughs> you know, like then we had to, um, you know, <laughs> dig into that, that wallet, uh, get some upgrades. <laughs> And finally banged out our session, uh, which was, which was like an hour long chat yeah, uh, without any lights falling off. So the MSP show, sometimes we are a little bit educated. Most of the time we're just uh, talking shit, but it's overall, it's a lot of fun. So well, yeah. And I have to say, like, uh, when I first watched an episode, I was like, ah, <laughs> it was, it was funny because, you know, but. Just the, the professionalism of the show, like you were doing anything, how it, how it evolved from, I mean, in less than a year's time, yeah. just super cool from like a podcast where I was like, I'll watch some snippets because it's my friend and teammate that's hosting it. But now it's really insightful and it's really cool because like you said, you get, you really get the insights and it's almost like you found your groove and it's really cool. But this is the thing. I mean, again, I, I, I can go on many tangents because of my background, but for me, like an athlete's life is quite interesting. If you can harness that kind of stuff, your profile just grows exponentially. Absolutely. And you guys are doing incredibly interesting things. You're fighting people around the world and what you do is amazing. So just <laughs> keep at it. And um, it'd be great to see like as the story progresses, you're both so young, Cam in particular, but Rickers, I mean, you're still not exactly halfway through, I would say. Yeah, absolutely like, not. Yeah, I mean, I it's just, just, like, just you, entered the prime. You've, you've done so much that people maybe see you as a veteran. And in many ways you are, but I mean, you what? You're 28 years old. 28 years old. Got a long, yeah. got a long, long got way a to long go on the story. Yeah. 
All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, UFC 282, don't miss it. These guys are going to do us proud as they always do and always will. I'm excited. I'm excited for any time the UFC is on, when you guys are on and the messages that I get, like my phone also buzzes and I'm not oh, even involved. <laughs> just that people know that I know you and, and then by great. association, they want to talk to me endlessly. That's great. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, guys, cheers, Ben. Thanks cheers, for having cheers. us. Always good. Thank you.